Hi, my name is Matt Zilla. I'm a puppet fabricator from Coraline and recently Guillermo del Toro's Academy Award winning Pinocchio. And you are listening to Kyle on the Isle. and welcome to Kyle on the Isle. I'm Kyle Olson. Lights, camera, action. Or should we say strings, fabric, and magic? Because today's guest is none other than the puppetry wizard, Madzilla Duran. If you've ever been entranced by the mesmerizing world of Coraline or applauded the brilliance of the Academy Award-winning Pinocchio, then you're already a fan of Madzilla's genius. As a master puppet fabricator, He's not just behind the scenes. He's the craftsman breathing life into the characters we've come to adore. With meticulous precision and an artist's touch, he creates wonders using fabric, clay, imagination, and some gifted hands. So sit tight as we unravel the tales of the puppetry world, diving into the enchanted universes crafted by Madzilla Duran. And action! Madzilla Duran, welcome to Kyle on the Isle. We are so excited to have you here, man. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Well, we're especially excited because you told me just before we started recording that this is your first ever podcast. So we are honored to be your first. This is so cool. Thank you. Yes, it is. (laughs) I'm very nervous. And excited. Oh, <laughs> uh, well, you have no reason to be nervous. Only excitement here because there's a lot of really cool stuff that you have been doing in the industry that I have no doubt that our audience is going to be very curious to hear about. The first thing I want to kind of talk to you about, which is what I like to talk to everybody about, is a little bit of your origin story and how you kind of first became interested in the arts and the entertainment world as we know it. So walk me through what it was like for you as a kid and when you first kind of started to feel that bug and that interest for the industry? Well, we'll just rewind way back to the 90s. Let's just say probably shortly after Jurassic Park came out, Barnes & Noble in the Mole had that making of Jurassic Park book and all of those scenes of the making of. And as a child, I absolutely love, still to this day as a 42-year-old man, I love playing with toys and I've always loved making my own toys by taking them apart, putting them back together. And then my uncle introduced me to stop motion just randomly. He had a video camera. He's like, hey, if you press record real quick and then stop, you could move something. And that was kind of the seed that planted this desire. And then I started going with clay, uh, making a slug. And I just would animate a slug coming out of an egg. And then back on the Discovery Channel at 9 p.m. on Thursdays, there was this show called Movie Magic. And I don't even know how I stumbled across that, but I was so obsessed with that show that I recorded it on VHS. I still have all the tapes downstairs. (laughs) And I was just like, I don't know how to get into this industry. And none of my teachers or counselors knew how to get into the industry because this was before the internet. So it was just books and comics and movie magic. 
And I was just absolutely obsessed with the idea of sculpting something and making it into a giant animatronic T-Rex. Or then comes in Godzilla, my healthy obsession. I just wanted to know, how do you make stuff, even with makeup and masks and all that? And that's really where it all started. And then I just continued to dabble. I started making my first stop motion movies in probably seventh grade. And I still have all those. And they were just done with my toys. And then one day my grandpa was like, hey, if you put a piece of plexiglass in front of your set, you could paint on it. So when you're animating Uh Godzilla, he can do his atomic breath. And you could paint the explosions instead of using those firecrackers that you've been doing in the backyard. We don't want to cause a fire, so stop doing that. <laughs> you know, stuff like that. And it just kind of grew from there. And I was really fortunate enough to be surrounded by teachers in high school that really nurtured and supported my love for the special effects. Because yeah. fun little story about makeup. I used to do makeup on myself to get out of school and go home. Oh my gosh. And my mom called one day and was like, why do you keep sending my son home from school? You know, like, oh, well, he's been sick. He got wounded. And she's like, yeah, you noticed it's gone like two days later. He's been taking makeup classes and you should stop sending him home. He's faking it. <laughs> so then one of my teachers, who I'm still their friend with today, she basically said, hey, we have this program in Salinas. I grew up in Salinas, California. She's like, we have this program called Every 15 Minutes. It's where the local police force and fire department stages car accidents to basically deter students from drinking and driving. Matzella, you want to do the makeup for it? Sure. And wow. So I started doing that. And I did that for like six years. Even after high school, they still contacted me. And I think the final year I did it, they paid me for the first time, which was great. You know, all of these little seeds of support from my community and family and friends really furthered my love for special effects and makeup and movies and monsters and stop motion that I just, then I ended up going to college at the Art Institute of San Francisco, California, San Francisco. And I got a degree in animation and then I got hired at Leica right out of college on Coraline. That that is an incredible origin story and an incredible kind of leading up into it. Obviously want to talk about Coraline, but before I do, I definitely want to get a little bit more of an understanding of kind of that growing up period. I feel like everybody when they're growing up has what I call the gotcha film. This Mm -hmm. is the film that you just, you watched and it was like, holy cow, this, I want to do that. Right. For myself, it was the wizard of Oz. I know you talked about like the making of Jurassic park and all that, but at the same time, I hear your name is Matt Zilla and I can't help but think that Godzilla had a little bit of play here. So curious a little bit. how all that yeah. plays in here. Oh, gosh. Well, I like to tell my dad this story because he likes to be reminded of it. But when I was four years old, it was 1985. And we were in this video store because my parents were buying a TV or a VCR. I don't know. And way back sure. when, remember, they were TVs everywhere right. showing one particular movie. And this movie on the TV was absolutely terrifying. And I was like, I don't even know what this is. And I learned as an adult, I found out it's the movie In the Company of Wolves. And it was the scene around the dinner table. Everyone's changing into a werewolf. I was terrified. So I hid by my dad, hid my face. And then I peeked out from behind him. And there's this poster of this weird looking dinosaur. 
And I'm like, what is that? And it was a yeah. poster for Godzilla 1985, The Legend is Reborn. Japanese Godzilla movie coming back to America. I think 79 was the last year Japan made a Godzilla movie. They sure. took a hiatus and I was like, dad, what's that? And he's like, oh, that's Godzilla. And I kept asking him, what's that name again? Because I kept forgetting the name. Yeah. And that's where it started. And then when it finally came out on VHS to be able to rent, I was like, can we rent this? Can we rent this? And that really got my, oh, this is an amazing dinosaur. What is he, this like? And I know he's not a dinosaur for all you G fans out there who are going to jump <laughs> on me. It just kind of grew from there. And then fifth and sixth grade before Jurassic Park, I met a friend who had all these other Godzilla VHS. And I had no idea there were other Godzilla movies outside of 1985. So then I got introduced to Godzilla versus Mecha Godzilla and the sea monster. And I was like, what? There's more than just this one. And then at the same time, I was confused as to why does he look different in every single movie? <laughs> why are they allowed to do that? That doesn't make any sense. And then I realized, oh, so they're made like every time. And that's where my healthy obsession with Godzilla started. <laughs> and then, you know, in regards to my name, basically after I turned 18 as a birthday present to myself, I decided, mom, dad, can I legally change my name? And they were like, sure. My mom said, oh, I don't care. I didn't want your name to be Matthew anyway. And I was like, really? She's like, yeah, no, your dad got to the nurse before I did. So yeah, go ahead, change your name. And my mom even went with me to the courthouse to be there when the judge said, sure. Even though he was like, what? Mm, okay. <laughs> anyway, this is your name now. But a neat way to kind of give a little bit of an ode to what was obviously a big part of your childhood. Yeah, and still is to this day, and I don't regret it at all. And I, I'd like to think that it certainly helps me stand out when I was in college. Like, oh, your resume, you want something on your resume to put, you to, put it at the top. I'm like, well, okay, well, my name's yeah. Matt Zilla, no, so. That, that, that's a pretty good opening line, I think, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I can only imagine there's people that are like, wait, is that really your name? Right? Like that, because it's such an unusual name. Is that really your name or is that a nickname? Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, it's really my name. I, I spent the money to make it so. It's on my ID and my credit cards and everything. <laughs> there you go. I mean, that's an amazing story, though. And it's very unique, which is Thank very, you. very cool. So is, is it safe to assume then that Godzilla was that kind of gotcha film for you? Or was there something else that kind of really hooked you? I gotta say, it's really hard to tell because the magic for me of Godzilla was, I didn't know. I was so absolutely, I believed it. Mm -hmm. Like it didn't occur to me at that age that it was a man in suit. It wasn't, I believe, until probably 95 or 94 that a friend of mine had an actual Japanese making of 1992's Godzilla vs. Mechagodzilla 2, right. which was like, I didn't even know that that was a movie coming out. And he had this little book, which I still have to just say, of the making of that movie. And I remember looking at those pictures and just being blown away wow. because I was like, I didn't know they're making Godzilla films. Yeah. Oh my gosh. And then at the back of the book was, there's a dude sculpting Godzilla. There's someone trying on the suit. And I was like, this is a thing you can get paid <laughs> to make this and do this right and i believe before that probably around sixth grade i had seen from star wars to jedi the making of the oh, saga great great movie so i feel like that was the yeah this is a job right you can make monsters you can make things and it you know it took a while for all of those wires to connect and be like 
Yeah, all of these things come from someone who makes it. Right. Not, oh, everything comes in a box. Right, it's, right. It's fabricated. It starts as someone sculpting something. So there's so many just snippets of things there. I'm like, oh, yeah, and I love that. Oh, and I love that. Like when I saw The Wizard of Oz, it just never occurred to me that it was someone in makeup. <laughs> I just was like, yeah, okay. Right. That's just yeah, a character. Sure. Yeah, that's just a thing. That's no big deal. And it, uh, yeah, it just never occurred to me like, yeah, we're painting him. He's wearing a mask. Right. Very cool. So it sounds like it really was kind of a melting pot of these different things throughout your childhood, Jurassic Park and Godzilla and a little bit of Star Wars here and a little bit of that there, right? Yeah. That all kind of put into this culmination of, wow, this is really cool. And oh my gosh, I can do this for a living. Oh, absolutely. Wow. Yeah. Because I always got in trouble in school for drawing. And sometimes I'd bring clay and I'd just like make little figures. And it's like, I'd even bring toys that I hot glued together. I'm like, this is my new monster. I just made this. And I was always getting in trouble for that. And I remember a math teacher specifically on the back of my homework, I drew this huge picture and I was up at the board and she <laughs> looked at me and she showed me the drawing. She's like, this is why you're failing. And I'm like, yeah, but that's cool. <laughs> yeah that'll get me somewhere unlike this math stuff i didn't know but i had hopes and gus <laughs> here in my career most of what i do is actually math so uh sister bernice i actually got it <laughs> right yeah ah yes how the tables have turned hey it worked in the end <laughs> yeah. So you go to school because of this interest, right? You study this obviously more in depth than what you had tinkered with and played with throughout your kind of middle and high school career. And then mm -hmm. you land one of your first big gigs over at Leica working for Coraline. How did you yeah. get into Leica and how did this role kind of come to be? And also, what did you end up doing on this film? Yeah. So college was such an interesting experience for me because when I was recruited, the program was for media arts and animation. So I specifically was like, well, I want to focus on stop motion animation. And they're like, oh yeah, we do all that. And then I get there and I'm about a year and a half into the program. Like, when are we doing the stop motion stuff? <laughs> and they're like, oh, we don't do that. We're teaching you Pixar animation, CG animation. So I was like, well, I'm going to talk to the sculptural teacher. And I'm like, can we start a club about how to make stop motion? So I kind of took it upon myself to basically get myself to where I wanted to be. And I started a sculpture club. I started a stop motion club. And so we had a couple of people who strayed a little bit off the program. And I'm not going to say I did the bare minimum to pass the program, but I didn't go bare minimum to pass the program because my final portfolio, everything was, I made a stop motion ogre puppet. I made these dinosaur sculptures and these aliens and these dragons. And during the final, I kept going to, willvinton.com oh god they hiring oh they hiring and one day it was leica.com and i was like oh they're rebranding awesome and i realized oh they have a position for all these things and i remember looking at my portfolio work and seeing silicone painter sculpture mold maker animator and i'm like well i can do all those things but can i do them good enough that I can confidently apply for the job knowing I'll get hired. Right. At least hoping with more of a yes than hoping with, oh, God, no. And I looked at my program and I said, well, I don't know how to paint with silicone. I certainly don't really know how to paint because I'm just terrible with colors. And then I was like, well, sculpture. Yeah, I can sculpt monsters, but can I sculpt a caricature of a life length of a person? 
uh, I don't know, like maybe I could, but uh, can I do this? And I was like, but mold making. Yeah, I've got everything that kicks the boxes in mold making. I've done silicone molds. I've done fiberglass molds. I've done stone molds. Yeah, let's give that a shot. So I kept emailing and emailing and my animation teacher actually knew someone and worked with someone on James the Giant Peach who was at Will Vinted Studios. And so I kind of had an in. So I think the counselors that helped you find a job after you graduate, they were able to have a little bit more to work with. And then I was very, very persistent. I kept calling. And again, so I, this was 2006. So I don't know how relevant it is today, but I was calling and all of a sudden someone answered the phone and kind of gave me a phone interview on the spot. Oh, wow. Didn't know that was going to happen. And I was able to talk myself through it and say, hey, my name's Mattzilla. I'm very interested in a mold making position. I'm very affluent in these different materials and I'm very comfortable with them. And I would love to be able to help you guys out on this new production. And they were like, yeah, sure. Why don't we fly you up and give you an interview? Wow. And I was like, okay. And they were like, also, we can't seem to find your portfolio. If you could bring some portfolios with you, that'd be great. And that was awesome because I hadn't actually sent a portfolio yet. <laughs> so I was like, great. This gives me an opportunity to actually have a deadline to finish my portfolio. Sure. So when I showed up, someone took me up from the airport, took me there, and I met my bosses and I gave them my portfolios. And my portfolio was a book I had sculpted of like kind of dinosaur skin with the, you know, dino damage ripped out. And my name was there with a logo. And so it was like, uh, I guess the best way to describe it would be it, it was a bit like the um, Necronomicon, you know, the flesh thanks because it was made of rubber sure. and it was literally like a storybook and you open it up and it's like this is what i made this is the client i made it for this is when blah 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 and here are the pictures and that was how i presented myself and said look this is what i do i've made fake teeth i've made elf ears i did makeup for a production never saw the light of day right i work three days almost 24 hours a day i can do a production hire me please right. and well they hired me and I moved up and I remember the producer. I didn't even know how much I was getting paid. At that point, you don't really care. You just say, I'm in, I, right? I, yeah. Yeah. And, oh, and I, and I remember I went to the library to rent the book Coraline because I was like, I don't even know what this is about. I had never even heard of it. I read the book. I was like, holy cow, this is awesome. I cannot wait to work on this movie. And then a dear friend of mine like drove the U-Haul because I had also never driven a U-Haul. <laughs> she drove the U-Haul up with me up to Hillsborough. I moved in and I started a week later and gosh, and then I was there for 13 years. Wow. On all of their movies from Coraline to Missing Late. That's incredible. And it was amazing. Yeah. It really laid the groundwork for my career for Shadow Machine where I'm at now. Absolutely. It was absolutely a dream come true working on Coraline because I was, holy cow, yeah. this is amazing. Oh, and I remember the producer when I called and I was like, hey, what, it, what am I getting paid? And then she told me and then she's like, oh, also, we're going to be putting you up in a hotel. And I was like, oh, no, no, no. I, I already got a, I got an apartment down the street. Oh, great. Well, we'll see you Monday. You get to make movies. And I was like, <laughs> yeah, holy cow. I did it. I get to make movies. Wow. I did it. I'm here. So I, I do remember it was an absolutely surreal and magical moment for me getting to finally do that, be there. And even meeting people that like, whoa, you directed The Nightmare Before Christmas. Hi, I'm in the puppet department. Nice to meet you. Hey, hi. There, there's something so special about that, right? When we're growing up, we watch these things that obviously inspire and influence us. And then when you get to work with them, 
it, it it's very hard to describe that feeling, but it's obviously very cool because you get to work with these people that had such an influence, but it's also like a little bit of fangirling, right? So it's, it's all of these things kind of mixed together, but it's so special to be able to do that, right? Oh, yeah. And speaking of fangirling, can't we just tell you the stories about Pinocchio? Oh, I can't wait. Oh, my God. What a wonderful tease that is for when we get down the line here. So when you're working on Coraline, you essentially start as a mold maker, right? Mm-hmm. For those that might not be as familiar with the animation world, describe to me, what does that really mean? Like, what are you doing kind of day in and day out as a mold maker? Well, basically, it would start with talking to the sculptural department who are sculpting the characters. Then they give it to us and they say, good luck. And our job as mold makers is to basically take this beautiful, incredible highly detailed, amazing sculpture, break it up into a bunch of pieces, which is not fun and very, very you know, nerve-wracking, and replicating it in a variety of materials is the final product. It's, let's just say it's a maquette. And a maquette is a statuette that shows the character's personality, attitude. Aside from their physical characteristics, it also shows you who they are. And so a lot of times they're in a specific pose. It's not in a neutral pose. It's in a very specific pose. And so our job is to recreate that multiple times. And so if it's going to be a maquette, then usually we'll replicate it in plastic so that it can be passed off to the paint department so they could do a couple of paint passes to show the director and say, you want these jeans blue? You want them brown? How do you want this to look? And as a mold maker, our job is to replicate this beautiful sculpture multiple times now when it's a puppet we get to break it up and usually it's sculpted in a neutral pose Mm -hmm. and so that's a little bit easier keyword little bit because that has its own challenges but then you basically take a piece and you bisect it and make it you will make a mold that is hopefully two pieces sometimes it can be up to six to twenty you never know and your job if you can't see my work my job was done correctly because the bane of most puppet fabricators existence when making something screen ready is something called a seam line. And a seam line is best described as when you look at a toy, you can see where the two halves of plastic have been glued together. That's a seam. And so my job is to make that as non-existent as possible. Mm. So the easier it is to remove a seam, the better your job has been done. Interesting. So as this is your first project, you kind of mentioned earlier how like, you know, you had talked about just getting the job and how you, I don't want to say faked it till you make it, but like, you know, a, li- a little bit of like the, yeah, I got the portfolio. Let me just go home and finish that up. And like those kind of things. Right. And that one thing that landed in my favor is Coraline production started at the old Vinton building. So when I had got my boss on the phone, they had only been in the new Hillsborough building for about two oh, weeks. Wow. Okay. So. I literally was lucky. I was like, oh, you must have lost it. Oh, you know what? I'll just bring some new ones when I come up. Work to your favor, right? But this inevitably (laughs) plays into, like, I feel like most people can relate to this, right? When you finish school, whatever your first kind of job is, or in this industry, whatever your first kind of gig is, there's definitely an element of fake it till you make it, right? And so I'm curious what the biggest kind of takeaway was for you working on Coraline as your first kind of quote-unquote, big, real Hollywood production. What do you think was the biggest lesson that you took away from working on that film? 
oh, well, then I can mold a piece of paper and get that seam line right on the edge <laughs> because I had to mold the maquette for Other Mother version 3. And I am not joking. A lot of her sculptural elements were pieces of cardstock dipped in clay and then detailed out. And I had to take all that apart, make dents and suspend it on, you know, with an injection hole and then dents. And then there's something called a jewel cut. So there's a bunch of different types of mold making, but there's clay up where you use clay to bisect your piece. Or there's a jewel cut, which is generally used because it's very small and you use it for jewelry making. But that's the best way to say is you box something up and you put indicator pins and then you pour silicone that is not translucent over the whole thing. So you have to make sure that your indicator pins are set in a way that you can trust them so that when you use your scalpel blade and you're cutting to that piece in a zigzag motion so the two halves meet together like a key if it's keyed together perfectly it's accurate and i was so mortified that i'm the one this new guy fresh out of college got to mold this star villain of the show and i thought oh my gosh they're testing you is this a if you don't do this we're gonna fire you yeah well i don't know maybe uh, but i i succeeded right. i pulled it off we were able to make a bunch of those maquettes. She's incredibly beautiful and terrifying. And, you know, you got to see her at the end of the film. That's amazing. But that was probably my most absolutely terrifying, stressful moment um, on call. Sure. And it sounds like from there, obviously, you had a very fruitful career at Leica going on to work on a number of their productions that ultimately led yeah. to you going into what is one of your more recent productions, which just won the Academy Award for Best Animated Film, uh, talking, of course, here about Pinocchio, which congratulations on the win. What an incredible win that was. Thank you. Oh, gosh. So much of that film, obviously, the film itself is just gorgeous and beautiful and stunning storytelling. And Del Toro, I mean, need we say more, right? But I also think that what was neat about that movie and just kind of the kind of quote-unquote experience that came out around that film was how that movie really gave a surge to kind of the traditional animation, right? And it really brought back yeah. this love for when you make films the old-fashioned way and when you really pour your heart and soul yeah. into it and that sort of thing. I imagine this was felt throughout the process of making it. Would that be safe to assume? Oh, 100%. 100%. One thing Guillermo really wanted to stress was perfectly imperfect. Mm. Like he didn't want it so beautiful and pristine that it looked artificial, but wanted that handmade crafted look mm. so that it felt real that this world exists and was made by artists' hands. Right. And boy, talking about fangirl, yeah, that was an absolute dream job to be a part of. And I remember the first day he came to my desk and I was like, oh gosh. <laughs> and we got some good pictures of me and him at my desk because I had learned that, you know, he started in the career as a mold maker oh. and a special effects guy. So one of my molds that I had made that's on display at the Portland Art Museum currently and was on display at the New York Museum of Modern Art was one of his favorite molds. And he came over to my desk specifically to look at it. Was, wow, that's beautiful. And I was just beside myself because it just looks like a beautiful amber coffin. And the museum lit it up so it glows oh. like it's this beautiful dark crystal sort of thing. And it's really, it's very flattering that I made it in that way specifically because of the complexity of the sculpture that I said 
to everybody involved in regards to this is how I'm going to tackle this. I'm going to mold it upside down because everything is an undercut. Mm. And I'm going to mold it in a semi-translucent material because when we cast this, we need to make sure that we can see where the air bubbles are and we need to see where we can make sure that they aren't. Mm. So I'm going to do this upside down and I'm going to vacuum it while it's in the mold and let's just cross our fingers and hope I don't muck it up. And I did muck it up and it's on display in museums and I'm very happy that Guillermo loved it just as much as I did in relief that I pulled it off. Mold making is, well, I guess we could try it this way. Right. And it's always tricky with that word try because I might fail. I might completely get this wrong. And sorry, sculptor, could you redo it? (laughs) I got to do this over again. And they don't like hearing that because they're under pressure and so am I. So it's definitely one of those things where you have to draw it dream about it, stress about it, figure it out. Oh yeah, maybe that'll work. And then you realize, oh, you know what you didn't account for? The material that you're using won't actually cure against the clay that was used because you forgot X, Y, and Z. Oops. Yeah. And that's when you're pouring it. When you're mid-pouring it, you're like, oh gosh. You have the realization <laughs> that, oh, yeah. I didn't think about that. Oh, I've made a terrible <laughs> mistake. <laughs> Which we've all had, right? Where it's like, oh gosh, you see it as it's happening. It's never happened to me. <laughs> right. So I'm curious, how did your role on Pinocchio change from your first role as a mold maker over at Leica on Coraline? Like, what were you doing on Pinocchio? And what characters were you most interacting with? And how did that look for this production? Well, on Coraline, my role was basically defined as a mold maker. The one thing I did get to do on Coraline, which I was so happy about, and you could see me at age 26 being interviewed on the Blu-ray talking about how I got to make Slugzilla. Oh, wow. So I got to do that all four or six of those puppets because they were all different. There was like a large one. There was a stretched one. There was a mustache one. I got to make that particular puppet on Coraline, which really helped instill my ability to be more of a fabricator overall than just a mold maker. On Pinocchio, I was a senior mold maker fabricator. So it wasn't just, hey, you're in charge of molds. It's like, you get to do molds and run the foam for foam latex, make armatures for a lot of the children in the camp as they're training to become little fascists. It was an awful lot of that. So it was huge. I got to make Pinocchio's shoulder gaskets, ankle gaskets, his hands, his neck. There was so much to juggle on Pinocchio from Coraline that it was really such an amazing, wow, you've gotten through all of these levels. Welcome to the boss round. (laughs) You have to please Guillermo. So make sure all of this training has paid off. Yeah. Hey, we pulled it off and we have an Oscar to show for it. And the team was amazing. It was absolutely a dream for sure. And I was just so incredibly happy to be a part of that. There's so many things in what you just said that I absolutely adored. The first that I have to call out is the fact that Mattzilla worked on Slugzilla. Like, I mean, come on, come on. I mean, that's kind of what helped me state my case when I was like, well, could I please? (laughs) Yeah, give me a reason not to, right? 
Yeah, uh, we have so much in common. <laughs> and I gotta say, when I was making Slugzilla, there was a time where all of my friends seemed to think that I was obsessed with slugs because I was doing a lot of reference material. Yeah. So for a Christmas or two after that, I was getting slug mugs and <laughs> like slug magnets and t-shirts. More slug merch than you've ever dreamed of. Yeah, and I was just like, I'm not obsessed with slugs, you guys. This is just part of something I have to do. Just part of the job. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's so funny. What I also really enjoyed you saying just now was that you, you kind of compared a little bit of your job to a video game, which I think it's such a perfect analogy. You've completed all these rounds and now you've gotten to the boss level. And that happens so often in this industry where you've done all the things, you've jumped through the hoops, you've gone over the hurdles. And just when you thought you got there, da 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 da, there's one more thing, yes. or there's one more approval, or whatever. Mm -hmm. I'm curious in this production, what was one of the bigger challenges that you faced on the movie? Oh gosh, well, the size of the dogfish was something that I don't think any of us really had anticipated, because my boss had made a version of the dogfish that was kind of a test puppet, and it was manageable. And then when it came time to making the actual puppet, it was way bigger than I had even anticipated. Mm -hmm. And maybe I was the only one who didn't read an email, which is very likely because I generally don't check my email. <laughs> I was like, oh, God, that's huge. And I feel like he was almost four and a half feet long. Oh, wow. And so molding that was definitely a process because it was an awful lot of super sticky fiberglass. But the one thing we had in favor for molding that was lockdown. Mm. When nobody else was in the studio, a coworker and Maya got to go and we were able to use that super stinky fiberglass and mold that dogfish body and then head and tear. It was so many pieces that we all got to put together. And then running the foam for that was something I had not even been good at. I had had some amazing teachers teach me how to run foam latex in that quantity. And I had messed it up multiple times, as you do. That's okay. Yeah. It is on display at the Portland Art Museum, so I did something right. That's right. And with the help of everybody else who made it, looked absolutely amazing. And I feel like that was probably one of those, oh, geez, that was my Pinocchio moment for, right. oh, that's, that's huge. You didn't realize the scale that that was ultimately going to become. And you now have yeah. the bragging rights and you can say you did it, right? <laughs> absolutely. It definitely changes the game a bit, right? Other things that change the game here are working with massive talents like the likes of Guillermo del Toro. You know, we talk about how these people obviously influence and inspire us when we're young. And then the opportunity to be able to actually work with somebody who is without question a master of his craft. What was that experience like for you? And what did you take away from working with him? Oh, gosh. Well, my introduction to Guillermo, I'd say it was Hellboy. But then after Hellboy, my roommate in San Francisco showed me the Devil's Backbone and, and Blade 2 and Mimic. And I just was like, holy cow. And then Pacific Rim is one of my favorite movies. Oh, great movie. Yeah. I really wanted to nerd out with him about that, but I just didn't get the opportunity to really talk to him a whole lot. Yeah. Because every time that we visited, it was very, you know, his business it was critiquing the eyeballs that I made or something like that. But Working with him was absolutely a dream come true. And I never in my life, if I could talk to my younger self and be like, hey, you're going to be working with Yarmo one day. I'd be like, sure. Okay. Time to go to sleep. You know, um, it just, it was absolutely mind boggling. And I feel like even still to this day, it hasn't quite hit me. 
that I got to work with him, yeah. but even the instances where he came to my desk, you know, I've got pictures on my phone that a friend of mine took where he's looking at my stuff and I'm just next to him. Like, oh my gosh, she's right here. Oh my gosh, she's right here. And, you know, my boss was always so wonderful at very much introducing us to him so that we could shake his hand and, and being like, this is Matzilla. He is a mold maker. This is what he does. And to get that acknowledgement and being treated as an equal on the playing field, it was just truly magical because I really appreciated that versus instances where like, don't make eye contact. They're blah, blah, blah. I really appreciated the fact that it was just like, this is Guillermo. Hi, Guillermo. Nice to meet you. Oh, and shake his hand. And it was really, really nice. It never felt intimidating to be on this production. Well, intimidating with Guillermo. Right. There's plenty of other intimidations, but that just comes with the job. Sure. Right. Yeah. There were moments where the job was intimidating, but not necessarily him. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Right. It sounds like such a rich experience. And I'm curious, there's inevitably people that will listen to this that are just like what we were when we were younger and interested in trying to grasp everything they can and kind of absorb from folks that are doing what they might have an interest in doing. If you were to sit down and kind of say, all right, here's what I've learned. What would your first masterclass lesson be on? Oh, gosh. Well, don't take it so seriously that you're going to lose sleep at night and you know, wake up with gray hairs. Like, it's fine. It's fine. Mm. We're making movies. You love this. Remember, this is why you're here. Yes. Take a deep breath. Focus. Like, and I don't mean to demean this in any sense in the industry, but we're not saving lives. No, of course. You know, it's not open heart surgery. Right. It's entertainment. Mm. You are making people happy through something that they love. Otherwise, they wouldn't be watching it. Yeah. And if they weren't watching it, we wouldn't be making it because it wouldn't be demanded. So you know what? Calm down. They're puppets. It's fine. <laughs> Take a deep breath. It's all right. Somebody put that on a bumper sticker. It's going to break. Calm down. They're puppets. It's fine. Just smack that on a bumper Calm sticker. Calm down. They're puppets. It's fine. Exactly. <laughs> puppets don't talk back. Oh, that's okay? also good. And I feel like maybe that's why we're in this industry making puppets because they don't get mouthy. <laughs> and they're going to break. Like we make them, you break them. It's fine. <laughs> wow. So many great quotables. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We know how to fix this. And like Nick and I used to say on the Tin Woods Roll we we're making is whose idea was it to do this and stop motion? <laughs> it's not a quick medium. It is a medium of love and beauty and the art form speaks for itself. Yes. So it takes time. We'll get there. Yes. I'm so glad you said that. There's two things there that I definitely want to highlight. You said ultimately one of the reasons we're doing this is because we have such a passion, because it makes us happy, because there is that kid in us that got excited when we first were falling in love with this industry. I remember growing up, I had a theater teacher that obviously left a mark on me. And Mr. Jackson was always fond of saying, remember that the main reason we're here is because we enjoy it. Right. Yeah. And and so many times when we're stressed or it's a hard day or there's some really daunting task or we're in the final boss level, as you say, we kind of lose sight of that sometimes (laughs) that like ultimately we are here because we love this. There is a passion that is in us that oftentimes spurs from a young age. Yeah. The second part of what you said that's also great is how this is not a fast process. And this is something that it's funny when I asked the question about the masterclass, I almost thought that what you were going to say is you need a lot of patience because 
when I think about stop motion animation, the only thing mm-hmm. I know I always think of is I could never do that because I don't have the patience of a saint. <laughs> sure. I got to say, though, if I did start with you got to have patience, then a lot of people might be like, oh, well, no way. I'm not going to do that. But then at the same time, if we get started and you learn, oh, gosh, I need to be patient. Mm. That's part of your learning process. And so therefore, it's like, yeah. I get paid to make expensive dolls that animators get to bring to life. So I guess you need patience. But then at the same time, I don't feel like I'm a patient person. But then also, I try not to take life too seriously. Yeah. I just try to roll with it and have fun and shrug my shoulders and be like, hey, I fell off when we got to the stage. Yeah. Oops. We'll figure it out. Someone get the glue. I mean, I used to make stop motion toys in my closet, in my bedroom. That was my movie set. And I used toys and lights and clay and it got hot and stuff fell down and I got impatient because I was a kid. And it's like, hey, remember when you didn't know what you were doing and you were getting mad? But guess what? Now we're getting paid to do this. You can get mad, but we're still getting paid at the end of the day. So maybe uh, let's all just make this an enjoyable environment because we're here because we love it. Right. And you are, by definition, living the dream. And Absolutely. (laughs) I feel like that comes through, especially in what you've been talking about. Like, it's clear that you have a passion for this, but I also know that you've taken your talents that you've learned through the years, whether it was on Coraline or Pinocchio or any of the other dozens of productions you've worked on. And you've recently turned that into a bit of a passion project about the Tin Man from The Wizard of Oz. Tell me a little bit about this project and how this all kind of came to be. Well, back when I got my first smartphone in 2012, I was obsessed with podcasts Mm. and I started listening to audiobooks as well. And I had never listened to the book, The Wizard of Oz, Mm. but I hadn't gotten there yet. I was listening to the audiobook, The Adventures of Tom Song. Okay. And I remember that story ending with him saying, because after all, there's no place like home. And I thought, wait a minute, that's a Wizard of Oz thing. You can't be saying that. So I looked up the Wizard of Oz book and I started listening to it because I was like, I don't remember her ever saying that in the book. So I just thought, huh. But then I also thought, holy cow, this book is amazing and completely different from the movie. Yes. And my favorite character was the Tin Man. And I became so obsessed with this tragic character. And I made a maquette of the Tin Man, which I showed Nick back in 2012. And he kind of fell in love with it. Yeah. And he made a joke like, oh, we should make a movie about this sometime. And I was like, yeah, sure. Because I say yes to everything. I was like, yeah, so let's do it. Well, fast forward, Nick came to me and said, hey, I'm ready to do a Kickstarter. Could you store aboard these sequences for me for this story that I wrote? And I wasn't really thinking anything of it because I wasn't working at the time. I was like, yeah, let's do it. And we launched a Kickstarter about the Tin Woods, about the Tin Man. We rented out a local theater here in Portland to play the movie Return to Oz. Because our movie very much can be simplified in Dorothy's statement when she's talking to the doctor and the woodsman chopped off his leg and it was replaced by tin and then he chopped off his arm and it was replaced by tin. And the doctor's like, yeah, 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 shh, anyway, we're going to let you keep in a bit. Nice to meet you. And that's such a weird little kind of throwaway line, but it's in there for fans who have read the book and know the origin story. So we rented out the theater and it sold out. Uh, We got our funding for our Kickstarter within 24 hours. Wow. And in fact, we got more than what we wanted. We only wanted $5,000, and I think we rose about $13,000. 
Oh, incredible. And that was just absolutely awesome. So then I was like, oh gosh, now we're committed. We have to make this movie. So we started production in early 2019. And I don't believe we started actually shooting until 2020. Mm-hmm. And we finished a couple of weeks before OzCon International. But, you know, the two of us only shot on Saturdays for the most part, working full time on a movie only to make a movie on the weekends. It was a little much. Yeah. But we finished it. I don't know how, but we did. <laughs> and I'm very, very proud of it. Yeah, that, that's what I was just going to say. I'm glad you said that because there must be a huge sense of pride that like something that takes this many years to make and is clearly a labor of love. And it goes back to what you were saying about this art form as it is, is in many ways, kind of by definition, love for the craft coming through and shining through in how you create the characters and how you actually go about shooting it and how you go through this entire process and put in the time year after year. And so I'm curious, what was the biggest takeaway from a project like that? Well, if you're going to work on a project with someone, make sure you guys really like each other. Cause I mean, Nick and I have really great chemistry. We have great humor to each other. I think there was only one day on set that I kind of got really upset. Yeah. And no, it's just because I drank too much coffee. But other than that, we always had a good time. It was like hanging out with a friend. I, I love it because you get so close to this project that you kind of breathe it after a while. And it's mm-hmm. just your life yes. for a couple of years. And then when it's over, you're like, holy cow, I did that. Huh. And that's how it was also with Pinocchio. And, and making this at the same time as Pinocchio. And even with our scenes where we have Nick Chopper, we've got... A, a woodsman in the woods chopping down trees. Yeah. And then I'm working with this character that's a character during my day job about a little boy made of wood. And I'm just like seeing parallels of these characters everywhere. It was an absolute labor of love. And the pandemic didn't help at all, as it didn't anyone. Right. But trying to finish that film and Pinocchio during a pandemic was definitely one of the biggest hurdles in my career. And I imagine a lot of that's because ultimately this is a collaborative art form, right? And like you have to be able to work with others. And obviously the pandemic made that very difficult for a while. And and this is just part of that process, right? I also have to say, like, as somebody who my gotcha film was The Wizard of Oz and my character was Mm -hmm. the Tin Man, part of that was because I just loved the movie. But really what started it for me was... I was in the play growing up when I was in elementary school and I played the Tin Man. And so that really got me interested in it. And oh, that's so awesome. And now like my freaking Instagram handle is Hollywood Tin Man and the whole thing. And so because of this, that's how we met. And so like you talk about these parallels and I can't help but often think about how one thing leads to another in that regard and kind of how you were talking about that with Pinocchio and the Tin Woods and how those kind of were almost similar in in eerie ways throughout the process. Neat to see kind of how that happens. Yeah, sometimes that had to be like, okay, I can't say too much because I don't want to accidentally recreate a scene from Pinocchio for Tin Woods. (laughs) So I'm like, Nick, I'm not telling you anything about Pinocchio because I don't want to accidentally subconsciously recreate a scene and get in trouble later on. Luckily, that didn't seem to be a problem. Well, needless to say, I can't wait to watch it myself. I'm very excited. I'm bummed I wasn't at OzCon for the premiere, but I can't wait to see it. And I'm bummed I also didn't see the initial Kickstarter because you certainly would have had a donor in me being the Tin Man fan that I am. Oh, awesome. You know, when you do the sequel, we'll talk, right? Uh (laughs) Of course, of course. (laughs) So 
I want to change gears a little bit and talk about your mm-hmm. perspective, just kind of on the industry as a whole. I love on this podcast being able to talk to folks and just kind of really pick their brains about what they mm-hmm. think makes productions a success and how they kind of go about any given piece of work that they're working on. And so my first question to you with that is, in your mind, when you're working on these films and these productions, what do you think is the biggest key to success? Oh, communication off the bat. Because, I mean, you can write a schedule down to the second for anything you want, but then at the end of the day, someone's taking a hot puppet to a set and they trip and fall over something and the puppet gets messed up or broken and boom, everything's thrown to haywire. And I feel like a good production with really good communication and interpersonal relationships that aren't toxic is really important because if everybody's on edge and angry and upset and like hates each other, then of course nothing's going to get done Mm -hmm. on time at all because nobody wants to talk to anybody and say, hey, listen, the puppet's not going to be on set because we accidentally dropped it on its face and its face cracked off and we're going to need a week to fix it. If you're used to someone responding by yelling and screaming and kicking, well, of course, you're not going to want to say anything. Sure. So I think a very good, professional, friendly atmosphere that has everyone actually enjoying your job and loving what they're doing is the key to a successful film. And I'm not talking financially successful. I'm talking, yeah, I'd do this again. Or, nope, I'm leaving the industry because I'd rather work as a server at a restaurant. <laughs> you know, it's, I feel like everybody's individual experiences with Other individuals in the industry will absolutely make or break somebody. And I've been fortunate enough to be surrounded by really amazing people that I do call my friends and I'm still working with them to this day. And I'm so thankful for that. And I think that's really, you know, I've got this core group of amazing artists and individuals that I happily call friends as well as colleagues. You say it so perfectly because at the end of the day, like we said earlier, the main reason we're here is because we enjoy it, but it's also because we enjoy the surroundings. We enjoy the people. We enjoy the colleagues and that can make or break not only a production and the success of the production, but to your point, someone participating in future productions and wanting to be interested. You can have the most talented people in the world, but if they're not being treated well, that talent's only going to go so far, right? Yeah. And they may not even open their own book of talents to you because they see that they're clearly not being received as an individual that's even worth being talked to. So if you're afraid right off the bat, I'm not going to tell you the talents that I have and the things I can do to make your production better or smoother because, well, because you're a meaty doo-doo head and I don't want to talk to you. Yeah, very much so. What do you think in your career thus far has been the biggest struggle that you face just in your time in the industry? Probably unrealistic scheduling expectations. Mm. After a dialogue is started and drawn out, it's always been, for the most part, very well received, acknowledged, and reformatted. But there have been instances where it's kind of like, we need this yesterday. And I'm kind of like, well, it's coming on winter. Chemicals are acting a little bit differently. I can't actually guarantee that you're going to have this in the way that you want it and ready for production because where it was shipped from, it drove through two states that are snowy and then it drove through a state that has a wildfire. So all those temperature changes made the chemical completely unstable. So I can't actually predict how it's going to react. So sure, I guess I could give you three days, but in realistic time frame, it might actually be six to eight days. Yeah. And sometimes they don't want to hear that. Right. But that's just the reality. 
Very much so. Yeah. And again, having those realistic expectations. One of the things that I often think about with animation these days is how mm-hmm. sometimes I feel like the art form struggles to get taken as seriously as maybe it should be or that it deserves to be. Animation is such a rich form and there's so much being poured into it. And then at the same mm-hmm. time, there are people that either A, take it for granted or B, oftentimes kind of blow it off. Obviously, Del Toro said that like animation is cinema. And that was like a big buzz phrase that yeah. went around. And I think that was so cool because it kind of helped redefine animation in a way where in the past we had thought, oh, it's just kid stuff. And it's like, no, no, no. Like it is still a right. huge part of cinema. But I'm interested to hear your take on that. Well, I completely agree that art can be expressed in so many different mediums. And so you can go to the art museum and you can say, oh, it's just a painting. Right. It's like, well, yeah, it's just a painting, but it's invoking emotions that you didn't even know you had until you saw it. And so when given a chance, I believe sometimes our society kind of paints this picture of cartoons are for kids, movies are for adults, blah, blah, blah. And that's just one of those ingrained things where you kind of need to experience it for yourself without that precursor of being told how you're supposed to feel about a specific subject. And that's the most important thing for me when viewing media is... I don't want you to tell me how I need to feel. I don't want you to tell me that, oh my gosh, this was the scariest thing I've ever seen. It's like, don't tell me that. Just let me see it and say for the clickbait headlines. I cannot stand the headlines that tell you how you need to right. feel about a specific yes. thing. Oh, cartoons are for kids because they're colorful and they're great. But I've seen some pretty dark cartoons <laughs> right. that have shaped who I am. Mm-hmm. Hashtag land before time. <laughs> I mean, that is a piece of cinema that is traumatizingly beautiful. I let people have their opinions and that's fine. And I hope to be able to show them something that will change yeah. their mind. Because there are works of art out there that I may look at and I'm just like, I don't like it. I appreciate it. I understand it. But it's just not sure. for me. Very much. And that's okay. I'm still going to do what I do. I hope you like what I do, but I can't change your mind. At the end of the day, that's on you. Absolutely. Extremely well said. When we talk about what we do, you know, you mentioned earlier, we're not doing open heart surgery, but at the same time, this is an art form that there is a lot going into. And it's a question that I often think about and uh, talk about with a lot of people, which is, yes, we're not curing cancer, but do you think what we do matters? Oh, absolutely it does. A young, impressionable individual will see this beautiful art form and it will change their lives. It will maybe save their life. It will give them something to go forward to. It will give them something to, holy cow, that's what I want to do. That's a job. That's a thing. So yes, I am not demeaning our art form in any way, shape, form, or fashion. Because I guess in a way, we are actually saving lives because we are giving entertainment. We are giving people something to look forward to and giving people something to desire more of. And that in itself is a part of what makes life worth living. It is an art form and a medium that is very beautiful and can send a really great message and it can inspire, make people happy. It can make people sad. It can make people want more, want to do something and offer something in their own way. Anybody can do stop motion. Anybody can make puppets. Anybody can do this. And I think people should because it is such a beautiful medium that can tell such a wide variety of emotions and stories. Yeah, beautiful. 
This is a perfect transition for me to ask this next question. I'm curious when you talk about how everybody should make puppets, and obviously you mentioned how you've made plenty of puppets of your own throughout your career and even at a young age. Uh-huh. Do you have a favorite mm-hmm. puppet? I realize this is like asking a mother who their favorite child Ooh. is probably, but right. I'm curious to hear if you do have a favorite. I do. It was a puppet that I made for my late nephew when I was 19 years old and he was like two or three at the time. I generally didn't want him to play with my Godzilla toys because he would break them. So I made a rubber cotton filled with wire Godzilla toy for him that was waterproof, bash proof, throw proof. And it's this little guy right here and I still have him. Oh my gosh. He's old, but I'm happy that I have it. I think of my nephew every time I see it. That's why I have it on display. And I remember when I made this, I thought, yeah, you could do that. Why don't you keep doing that? You could do that. Because at the time when I made it, I was just learning how to make molds. And I was just like pushing myself as a sculptor. So not only did I sculpt it as one piece, but breaking it apart into all of its pieces, all of the spikes had to come off, the arms had to come off, the legs had to come off. And then all of those were multiple part molds. And all I had on hand was plaster. So they were all plaster molds. And then all I had on hand was latex. So it was all latex. It was just a rubber stop motion puppet that doesn't move great, but that's okay. Worked for my nephew. It made his childhood wonderful. (laughs) Yeah. How beautiful. I think that's a great answer. Um, How long, and this is, I'm sure, a loaded question, but like when you're actually making these puppets, how long does it typically take to make a puppet? Or maybe the better question is, what factors go into the amount of time it takes to make a puppet? Well, the biggest factors are what is demanded of the puppet. How is the puppet going to move? And then the other things on top of that are aesthetically, how do you want it to look? Because if you need a joint in a specific area and you can't actually put a joint there, you got to change where everything is. So as to how long it could take, I mean, you could take a week, it could take eight months, yeah. it could take two years. It always depends because there's this testing stages. They're going to do walk cycles. They're going to do actions because the director might be like, hey, there's a scene where he has a street fight with this trash can and we need him to do this. And this is a squawky stretch. And it's like, well, the Tin Man doesn't really squawk and stretch, but we can make him squash and stretch. There's so many things that go into building a puppet that even before you start, you have to sit down and say, how are we going to do this? Because what's going to be needed of it? Is there a particular puppet that if I were to say, what was the biggest pain in the ass puppet? What would your answer be? Oh, gosh. Well, on Missing Late, there was this sequence where there was a bar fight and there was this dog named Missy. I think that was only in it for about two seconds. And I was part of a two-person team making that puppet. And I'd say that was the biggest pain in the ass puppet I had ever made because it was multiple different types of silicone that were like sleeving on top of each other for some squash and stretch. I worked many a weekend on that puppet. And then let's just say in the final film when I saw it, I was like, really? Yeah, that that does sound like a pain. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Is there a particular type of puppet that in the future you would love to create? Oh, yeah. More puppets like Death from Pinocchio. Four-legged wings, giant horns, huge tails. Creatures of that stature are just absolutely phenomenal. I mean, imagine a a Game of Thrones-esque dragon-type stop-motion movie with amazing dragons and mythical creatures. That would be so cool. That sounds amazing. I mean, who doesn't like dragons? Right. (laughs) 
and Depp was kind of a dragon. So that was the closest that I've been to making a stop motion dragon so yeah. far. So there you go. You got to keep building to the actual dragon itself, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Well, I think this is the point where it's time for us to transition into our final act, which is probably my favorite, our famed Hollywood hot seat. We get to ask you 10 rapid fire questions and you're just going to tell us the first thing that comes to mind. Some of these questions can be a bit tricky, and I imagine a lot of things might start flooding, but I'm excited <laughs> to see what you come up with. Are you ready to play the Hollywood hot seat? I'm ready. Let's do this. Hollywood hot seat. Here we go. Question number one. Favorite movie? Brazil. Ooh. by terry gilliam oh very nice it's absolutely fantastic it's one of those movies that when i'm working in my studio i throw it on because it just invokes emotions that i can't even really explain but it is one of those movies that i accidentally saw as a kid working at blockbuster and i'm like this is probably one of the greatest films i've ever seen in my life sound design visually weirdness enjoyment so brazil there you have it. All right. You're very <laughs> confident and also took me for a loop because I was convinced you were going to say Godzilla, but that's all right. I know, everyone does, and I'm, I'm, I'm happy to disappoint. <laughs> okay. This is a Hollywood hot seat first, but I feel like we have to do it for you. Mm -hmm. Favorite Godzilla movie? 1974, Godzilla versus Mechagodzilla. Didn't even hesitate. Yeah. There's a Godzilla movie, in my opinion, for every emotion on the spectrum. So when I introduce someone to a Godzilla movie, before I get started, I ask them, what are you in the mood for? You want to laugh? You want to cry? You want to be depressed? You want to be happy? Because we've got it all, baby. <laughs> okay, now I have to ask the opposite end of the spectrum for the Godzilla fans uh -huh. listening. Least favorite Godzilla movie. Oh, I can't do that. Godzilla 98. <laughs> <laughs> Which, I'll be honest, I think the only thing I remember from the Godzilla 98 movie was the Taco Bell commercial. Yeah. Look, that movie had everyone so excited to see Godzilla. So excited. I loved the advertising campaign. I was in high school. I was so stoked to see a Godzilla movie on the big screen. And then it came out and I was like, oh, it's just Jurassic Park, but larger, but not as good. So that movie, as much as I don't like it, it does hold a special place in my heart. I have friends that worked on it. I appreciate it for its time. <laughs> Thank you, Roland Emmerich and Dean Kellen, for trying but at least next time act like you care about Godzilla. <laughs> I knew you'd have the answers. And so I'm so glad I asked because those were the perfect answers. <laughs> okay. Back on track. All right. Question number two, favorite TV show. Oh God. Favorite TV show. Oh, uh, third rock from the sun. Great. John Lithgow is probably one of my favorite actors and, that show just never disappoints. I absolutely love that show. That's a perfect answer. He, John Lithgow, in my opinion, can do absolutely no wrong. I only hope that he will be in a Godzilla movie someday. There you go. <laughs> You're perfect, Master. Yeah. <laughs> uh, number three. Oh, I can't wait to hear your answer oh, to gosh. this one. The fictional character I identify most with is... Oh my God, the fictional character that I most identify with. Oh, let's just say the Scarecrow from the Wizard of Oz, because sometimes I am absolutely brainless and say the dumbest things all the time. And I don't even know how I made it this far as an adult. So <laughs> why not? I think a lot of us feel like so, the Scarecrow at times in our adult life. Yeah. So I think that's very relatable. 
<laughs> okay, this is another good one. Which TV show or film is your biggest guilty pleasure? Oh, I want to bring it down a notch, but I mean, Third Rock from the Sun aside, I really love Six Feet Under. That's definitely one of those shows that's a bit therapeutic for me. It's very interesting. I love how well-written it is, but also at the same time, it keeps me a bit grounded. With that said, not as depressing, but the show Dead Like Me, I absolutely loved that one as well, because that's a little bit more lighthearted, but still with the same heaviness. And I mean, who doesn't love Mandy Goodsinkit? Very good answer. All right. Number five, favorite mm-hmm. movie quote. Oh, gosh. Uh, excuse me. I can't help but wonder where on earth did you get that strange and unusual plant? I hope I didn't mess that up. But Michael Guest's cameo in Little Shop of Horrors is probably one of my favorite little sequences. And obviously some incredible puppetry work in that. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Lyle Conway is incredible. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. <laughs> Number six, your go-to craft service snack when you are on set. Doritos. The classic or like Cool Ranch? Uh, What are we talking? Cool Ranch. Cool Ranch. I figured you might be a Cool Ranch kind of guy. Cool Ranch is the guiltiest of guilty pleasures. (laughs) (laughs) Number seven. Who is your Hollywood crush hall pass? Probably Henry Cavill. Yeah. Superman himself, huh? Yeah, and I really love the movie Man of Steel, so... I know it gets a lot of hate, but I think it's just a fantastic movie. You just replaced Zod and Superman with Godzilla, and it's all of the effects that you need for Godzilla. <laughs> They're <laughs> perfect, right. Number eight here, who is a talent that you are dying to work with? Dying to work with? Oh, Sigourney Weaver. Oh. Yeah. That's a good answer. And if she is not available, Angelica Houston will be almost right up there, too. Also a good answer. Two incredible women. Uh, But also, as soon as you said that, our producer Natalie just gaffs in the background because Natalie worked on Avatar 2 and 3 and she was Sigourney Weaver's assistant. Oh, you're so lucky. Tell her I said hi. I wrote Sigourney Weaver a letter when I was in sixth grade that I still have because it got sent back to me. Inviting her to my house for dinner and I drew a picture of an alien. And on the back it says, I'm sure you have plenty of these, but here's one more. Oh, my gosh. If someday if I ever meet her, I hope to be able to know enough to get it because I still have it. And I'll be like, and also my dinner invitation is still up for grabs. Please come over for dinner. <laughs> come over anytime, Sigourney. I will make you whatever you want. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Th- th- one more one more fun side tangent here. If Sigourney Weaver was coming over for dinner, what would you make Sigourney? Oh, gosh. Oh, no. What would I make? I, well, first, I just asked her what she wants to make because I love to make all sorts of things. That's a good answer. But maybe some sort of stir fry. Everyone loves a stir fry. All right. All right. Uh, <laughs> number nine, if you could trade places with anybody in the industry for a day, who would it be? Rick Baker. Oh. I know he's retired, but I would love to, at the height of his career doing The Nutty Professor and the Prince, I would absolutely love to experience what it was like wrangling those productions at the same time. What was going through his head? Yes. What type of decisions did he have to make? What was important? What wasn't important? Like, I can't even imagine beginning to tackle both of those while dealing with life in general at the same time, being yeah. married and having kids and what kind of stress I think that's a great answer because you're absolutely right. Those are two hugely definitive movies of its time. And to have him at the helm of both of these was, yeah, an incredible undertaking. Uh, And number 10, our final question, what is the best piece of advice that you have ever received 
working in this industry and who did it come from? Oh boy. Well, Georgina Hayes, my boss, uh, I remember when I was rolling off with Coraline, I think she could kind of tell how I was afraid and uncertain of the future because also at the same time, we weren't even sure that paranormal was going to be happening next. And George basically was very calm and loving and, and nurturing and pretty much said like, you can do this. I know you can. That's simple, but at the same time, it really stuck with me and hearing yeah. it from her and being on the ship that she steered for so many years at Leica, being the one that hired me, it's always stuck with me. So it's always one of those things like, you can do this. You got this. I know you can do this. Yeah. So that's beautiful. Yeah. Sage advice for anybody. And I'm happy to say that George and I were currently working on some projects together. Oh, amazing. Wow. There you have it. He some really, really solid advice and a wonderful way to bring this entire interview to an end. This has been such a thrill and such a joy. Before we leave, if people mm -hmm. want to learn more about you or follow your adventures on social media, where yep. can they go? What can they search for? Well, I own mattzilla.com. It hasn't been updated since 2018, but you can always find me and email me there. I'm on Instagram at Majira, M-A-J-I-R-R-A, -R -R which I found out was the name of Godzilla's mother. So that's cool. Oh, uh, I was wondering where that came from. <laughs> yeah. And I only actually did it because I don't believe Mattzilla was available and someone jokingly called me Majira. And I was like, oh, that's kind of fun. So I just stuck with that. But that's usually my handle on things. And yeah, you can email me through my website and I'm happy to answer questions and I'm easy to talk to and easy to approach. And unless I'm super busy, I generally get back to people because I'm not very present on the interwebs. <laughs> <laughs> very good. Well, Madzilla, it has been an absolute privilege having you on the podcast today. We have loved and adored hearing all of your stories from your Hollywood experiences on Pinocchio and Coraline and everything in between. And we wish you much, much more continued success in your future endeavors and can't wait to do a checkup sometime <laughs> in the future and do this all again. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. Kyle on the Isle is an official podcast of Magic Lamp Productions and is recorded in the heart of Hollywood, California. This episode was executive produced and directed by me, Kyle Olson. Produced by Natalie Izquierdo and Lauren Wilson. Editing by Cody Crabb. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast and rate it five stars. Every single review goes a long way. And while you're at it, give us a follow on our social media channels at Kyle on the Isle. Thanks for listening. I'm Kyle Olson, and I'll be saving you a seat next time on the Isle. That's a wrap, folks.